0: everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Korean Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Leslie Hickman, one of the channel's hosts. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Andy Jackson about his new book, The Late and Post-Dictatorship Cinephilia Boom and Art Houses in South Korea. Um, the book was published by Edinburgh University Press in January of this year, 2024. So uh, Dr. Jackson is Associate Professor of Korean Studies at Monash University. His research includes not only North and South Korean film culture, but pre-modern and modern Korean history, cases of rebellion on the peninsula, and its invented traditions. Andy, I'm excited to meet with you today and perhaps be one of the first to interview you about your new book. Um, So I wonder if you could begin the interview with giving us um, some more information about yourself and how you came to write this book
1: yeah sure um thanks very much for having me on the um the podcast um leslie and i, I came to this book really because i i have an in, a general interest in in film in uh and i've always wanted to sort of do film studies and uh, when i was at university i i um uh, back then you could only do one subject so i was doing french literature but i uh back then in the sort of 1980s at Kent University, where I first went, they had film studies. And it was one of the first film studies departments in the UK. And I always wanted to get in, but they wouldn't let let me in because it was so competitive. So it was was something that was always inside of me. So much later in life, when I finished my PhD in history, I studied Korean history, I decided to go back to film studies. So I started another degree in film studies back then. And then what I do is... is, um, film history more than um sort of talking about actual films so in this book i'm looking at um um, the history of cinemas really and also cinema going uh and another reason for this book is i was in korea at this time when the time i'm writing about which is the 1990s um so 1994 95 I, i talk about the cinephilia and the art houses and the art film boom in this period but i was actually in korea and Korea. Korean cinemas back then were very different from what they are now uh, there, were, there, were, there was a few multiplexes but there were few in few in number um, and most cinemas um, were kind of um, sort of filled up on uh, Saturdays and Sundays and that's when I used to have time to go so me and my wife now we used to go to the early show because uh, that was the only one we could get into for the popular films uh, and it was, it was a nice kind of place to go because um, you were kind of um, uh, back then, in in Korea, there was there weren't so many sort of uh, people from other countries. There weren't so many white faces or or or, or sort of people from uh, other parts of the world. So you were kind of um, an attraction, a star attraction. But in the cinema, you were totally anonymous. So I, I loved the cinema uh, for that an- anonymity it gave you. Uh, <laughs> so that's how I got to this um, to this um, uh, subject. Really, it was it was kind of. Partly, I wanted to sort of investigate a period of career that I was actually in career historically, uh, but I was not involved in, in any way. So all this cinephilia, all these art films, all these art houses, or a lot of them, they just passed me by. I had no idea about them. So um, it was kind of a way to recapture a past that I'd never experienced.
0: Wow, that's fascinating. Um, I I tried to go to another art film before the interview, but I think I've only visited about one art house before in Korea but it's it definitely was making an atmosphere which I'll I'll ask you about later um so it was really it was really interesting experience and I enjoyed it okay um before we begin to look directly into your book could you please describe what exactly art films are uh, and what cinephilia is for our listeners
1: yeah sure well art films <laughs> are really this kind of a slippery they're a discursive um uh topic as it as it were that there are many sort of different sort of definitions of them mm-hmm. and that's one of the things I talk about in the in the book actually, what art film are but also what art houses are because it depends who you ask uh, you'll get a, di- a totally different definition but for the purposes of the book basically yeah, uh, we're associating art films uh, with a very sort of specific period in especially European or Japanese cinema so sort of 19... 19- 1950s, 1960s, 1970s. Um, this sort of period of of European cinema you, you might associate with sort of Italian or French di- film directors, with certain movements like the uh, the Nouvelle Vague, uh, neorealism in in Italy, and this kind of thing. Um, but of course, our films today are very different, you know, and, and not many people. A lot of people just stop using that uh, terminology. Um, but they still use it, you know, Yes and One. They still use it in in South Korea, mm-hmm. so it depends who you ask. But for the purpose of this book, uh, and for the for the listeners, it's basically a sort of period in, in European, especially or Japanese, uh, filmmaking associated with a specific period. And then cinephilia again is kind of discursive uh, area, and um, there are many sort of different definitions of it. But basically, as someone who's kind of um, uh, sort of obsessed with film, loves film, um, but there's also a sort of kind of um, uh, sort of community associated with cinephilia. So people sort of uh, gravitate towards certain places, towards certain other people, uh, and um, cinephiles also sort of see their sort of love for film and their their consumption of film as something slightly rebellious, uh, and that's a kind of very important part of cinephilia. And something I talk about in the, in the book quite a lot because a lot of the people who consumed the film back in the sort of 1980s and 1990s they were sort of um, people who had been deeply involved in in the student movement trying to overthrow the dictatorship uh, and after the end of the dictatorship with the with the uh, democratization or the de-authoritarianization of Korea. Um, they sort of um, gravitated, to, a lot of these people sort of gravitated towards culture and especially film and film consumption. So um, these sort of two two sort of um, aspects or three aspects of cinephilia are important for understanding what happened in the 1990s. Number one, um, it's kind of a love for film, a, a passion for film, but also a, a love for a certain type of film, especially associated with art house film or uh, or uh, experimental film, this kind of thing, but it's also a community, uh, and that's a sort of very important part of it. And also it's, it has some sort of associations with kind of uh, rebelliousness and rejection of what came before, especially in terms of cinema. Yeah.
0: Thank you. Thank you for that um, introduction. All right. So getting into the book. You start the discussion on Korean cinephilia during the authoritarian or authoritative area. So yeah. what did art film consumption look like during this era and what role, as you already sort of suggested, did pro-democracy or anti-authoritarian sentiments play in it?
1: Um, well, that's a good, that's a good question. Um, back then, it was very important for um, people kind of saw their consumption of film as something quite, kind of rebellious. Um, as I said before, you know, these associations of cinephilia and rebellion. Uh, and they 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 saw their consumption of film and their exhibition of film as something rebellious. I'll give you some examples okay. of that. Um basically the dictatorship kind of star starved uh young Koreans, or Korea all Koreans, of of a lot of sources of culture. Mm-hmm. Um okay. so um they used film as a means to Sort of, kind of, or used foreign film, overseas film, as a way to prop up their own industry, their own domestic industry. So um, you could get, um, if you import a certain amount of film, you could get um, uh, uh, if, if you produced a certain number of, There's was basically quote to quickies. So they they produced film on the basis of um, uh, you, you can import a film, you made, it was quite lucrative to uh, exhibit one of these films. And then the profits you made, you could then turn into producing uh, domestic film, and it was this kind of this kind of relationship between domestic film and, and film importation. So basically, what you had is a very starved industry. Um People generally sort of went for safe bets. So if they wanted to import foreign film, they didn't go for a sort of weird, sort of obscure Italian neo-realist uh, film in which there's lots of moments of silence and sort of. Um, Uh, sort of very strange uh, 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 sort of narrative not based on cause and effect. They basically got in um, sort of blockbusters you know, Jaws or or these films that they thought would make a lot of money Uh, and that's not to say that Jaws is a bad film, I I love this film Um, but anyway, um, so there was a film film industry and film um, sort of consumption culture that starved of a lot of types of film that you can see now today quite easily in south korea so all these kinds of films alternative films um or um, alter- uh, art films um they weren't really shown they weren't really imported so people had to self-import so basically what they did was smuggle in um films from uh other countries during trips abroad. um I don't know if if people were studying abroad, they were lucky enough to get passports and also get the right to travel abroad, and they'd sort of smuggle in films for their friends. Mm.
0: Um,
1: So a lot of these films were kind of smuggled in; they hadn't been passed by the official censors, and um, uh, this is uh, then exhibiting these films was kind of against the law. They hadn't been passed; they hadn't been given a a rating; they hadn't been passed by the censors. So. This was kind of a rebellious thing to do. And this is how people sort of thought they were resisting the dictatorship in the late 1980s. And then then after the fall of the dictatorship, um, basically, you still had a military government in power or or people associated with the military dictatorship in power. So that was another way people felt that they were kind of resisting um, military rule or the continuation of military rule. And another way they they got hold of these films, uh, and this is another way in which sort of pro-democracy mo- sort of sentiments creep into this culture, was they, um, uh, they illegally sort of recorded these movies off Japanese cable TV. So back then, sort of early 90s uh, to the mid-90s, a lot of um, these early cable TV networks were kind of being imported into been shown in in South Korea and um, uh, young people who love film, young cinephiles, would illegally record this film onto videotape and then start exchanging um, these films amongst friends. And that's how a lot of this cinephili- cinephilic sort of culture sort of grew up in this period. Anyway, that that's uh, that, that's the kind of um, com- art film consumption of this period. It wasn't really, it was underground and that's why it was kind of associated with people who who were were within the sort of pro democracy movement or associated with them
0: does that make sense yes it does thank you thank you for explaining that um so my next question sort of goes along with the um the previous one about the concept of uh, chedogon i think i'm pronouncing that correctly so you write that art film was often understood in opposition to that so besides the government. And so, like what are the things that are included in this this term of Chedo that art film sort of set itself up against?
1: So, back then, in sort of um, late eighties or mid to, mid nineteen eighties to the mid sort of nineteen nineties, um, two important concepts were Undong and Chedo So, Undong was basically the movement spear. So, anyone associated with the Minjung movement or people's movement um, uh, that resisted um, the dictatorship and that sort of uh, launched the June 1987 uprising um, and then the Chida one which is basically the polar opposite it was everyone associated with um, uh, uh, with the dictatorship in the eyes of the of the movement so what did the movement what did the Undong one consist of well it consisted of Basically, um, students, intellectuals, um, a lot of workers, um, uh, the, the poor, the dispossessed. Um, and then the Cheddar one basically was associated with everyone who didn't fall within that sort of group. So, people associated with the military dictatorship, but also uh, people associated um, with the American military presence. And people who supported them, um, and they had lots of supporters. They still do, um, and also people associated with the chamber, with the large companies, mm-hmm. um, which was, um, you know, kind of hand in glove with the with the dictatorship in many ways. And um, um, you know, they got preferential treatment uh, in terms of contracts and uh, uh, operating, and all this kind of thing. Yeah, for example, Hyundai got its big break in the Vietnam War. So, thanks to their involvement with um Chung He's regime, they were able to expand um, uh, greatly thanks to um, the Vietnam War. So, Chidewon on one side was um, was basically everyone associated with capitalism, with capital, with the government uh, uh, ministries, uh, and everyone associated with the uh, with the military dictatorship it's a very important concept yeah. uh, and people saw it in very very black and white terms in in that period of course it became much more complicated from 1993 onwards but in prior to uh, uh, prior to 1993 and especially prior to 1987 it was uh, far more sort of opaque uh, sort of far more black and white if you see what I mean um People sort of saw um, anything associated with the dictatorship as kind of bad, um, as tainted in some way, and um, uh, and this became sort of quite important later uh, when um, when people started making money out of art house film going into exhibition and um, started importing importing these movies, and it became quite lucrative. And people sort of saw themselves as no longer kind of cinephiles resisting or part of the Undong one, resisting uh, the of one. They sort of, sort of saw themselves as kind of selling out. And this is quite interesting. So there were these kind of sort of dilemmas for a lot of people uh, 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 later in life um, when they started t- t- to sort of um, compromise their original um, sort of political persuasion um, and their, their their political ideology and their sort of identity. They really associated themselves with this sort of, this period of resisting military dictatorship. Anyway, I hope that sort of gives you an idea of, of what Chedoguan is. Um, of course, now, if you ask people what the Chedoguan is, they may not have such a, a sense of, you know, there being something like the establishment. I guess that's what we would say, the establishment. Mm. Um, but, but back then, it was a really, really sort of crucial and key sort of notion.
0: I can imagine. Thank you. Uh, yeah, for clarifying that. So, in chapter two, you explore where individuals viewed art film outside of actual theaters. What are yeah. these spaces, and what role did they play in spreading interest in art film?
1: Well, that's a really interesting question because um, this is all a lot of this is very sort of historical now. You know, the, a lot of these places don't really exist as as viewing places. Um, um, and there were three sort of main areas where people went, um, two of which kind of still do exist, but one one of which has sort of disappeared completely. The first place are the European cultural centers. These are perhaps the most famous. So um, basically the French embassy and the German embassy uh, and to a lesser extent the Portuguese and, and Spanish embassies and um, the British embassy uh, and also the U.S. embassy, they would all all have sort of cultural sort of centres attached, mm-hmm. so um, to them. And Part of their sort of mission was to you know set up, create diplomatic exchanges and all that, but also cultural exchange. So the French embassy and um, um, the German embassy, in particular, had sort of um, uh, cinemas, small cinemas, and uh, people could go to see these, uh, see films. Uh, at these small cinemas if they paid a sort of nominal amount of money. And a lot of film buffs back in the 1970s and 1980s used to go to these places, watch films. These are probably the most famous of all these sort of unofficial spaces. And because a lot of people who went on to become famous directors or famous in the uh, South Korean film world, they went to these places to see these films. What was special about them was they were kind of like they had sort of um, they, did, they had diplomatic status, so they wouldn't have to pass the sort of standard um, censorship rules and regulations or importation, stringent sort of importation um, procedures that uh, films seen in ordinary cinemas would have to do. So um, people could see films you know, made in France uh, from the 1960s that they would never be able to see um, in ordinary cinemas, and they could see them in these cultural institutions. In cultural cultural centres, so these have been well researched and they're very they're, they're quite well known. The second space that where people could sort of see film in this period, especially well, young students, were in these film clubs. And um, each university, Yonsei, Seoul National University, Ewha Women's University, and all these sort of famous universities, they all had these small film clubs. People could go along and they could watch. They would go and watch films. Again, which, as I mentioned earlier, had been illegally sourced, either smuggled into the country and then uh, re- uh, viewed on videotape, or they'd been um, sort of illegally down, not downloaded. <laughs> you didn't download them; <laughs> illegally recorded off satellite TV. Yeah. So you had these film clubs, mm-hmm. um, and often they kind of had these sort of strict hierarchies within them. And I talk about this in the in the book quite a lot. They, you know, they'd have senior and juniors. And um, part of the condition of of the the desire for people to be involved in these clubs was to make films. So they wanted to get their hands on this equipment, which these student clubs had, which they'd sort of um, let people use. But uh, the condition of them getting to use this equipment was often they would have to watch all these films. (laughs) So they'd have to sit through all these French films, all these German films and these art films, often which were, very boring to them and they fall asleep and stuff like this and then uh, uh the, the the carrot at uh, the uh, the carrot uh, was um that they would uh get to sort of um be involved in making their own films so these are quite famous sort of places as well these these film clubs because again they produced lots of famous directors especially um directors associated with the um um, sort of 1980s new wave of films like Ah mm-hmm. uh, Gwang Su um, and he, he was in one of these clubs he's a famous sort of director associated with that and then the third space which I think is the most interesting was were called cinema text or videotechs and basically they were um, um, they were sort of set up in the late 1980s um, as a bunch of sort of film buffs from the universities coming together and um, exchanging their videotapes, tapes, um, and um, it was basically a video private cinema. So they were they were called cinematex, but they could also be called videotex. Uh, and they've been there were lots of these, especially in Seoul, but also in other major cities around South Korea. There was a loose network of them. They were they they would exchange films with each other. Um, they'd send these videotapes um, to other parts of the country. Uh, and basically a bunch of people would come come together. they they'd pay a s- small monthly subscription, and then they'd watch these films. Mm. Uh, and often at the film clubs uh, at the European cultural centers, but also at these video techs, they would have um, you know literature students or 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 people who knew a little bit about film um, come along and introduce them. Uh, or they get invite academics from neighbor, nearby universities um to sort of introduce these films talk about them and explain them a little bit and then they watch these movies often the problem was often um they'd only watch them on TVs so they wouldn't have a, a big screen um that- and um the subtitling was all often appalling no. um because they would subtitle them themselves or they would have subtitles in Japanese. Um so they would have, you know, maybe somebody explaining what was going on in the film, if it was an obscure film and this kind of thing. So the, the viewing conditions were really bad. Mm. But um apparently these places were great. You know, people loved them. And they had they've really had when I interviewed people about them, they had really fond memories of going to videotechs and going to these film clubs in the universities. They loved these places. <laughs> They were really special mm-hmm. uh, and a lot of famous people were produced and um, uh, uh, basically became directors as a result and of, um, starting off in these videotex and film clubs and cinematics and uh, uh, European cultural centers. Yeah.
0: yeah, I think the French cultural center, I've heard about a lot. Um, I don't know if the other ones are, are still around. I suppose they are, but the French yeah. one, I, I especially their film, I hear about a lot, oh, but I've never been to it. So that's still around. It's pretty cool. Right.
1: Yeah, These places are still around and, and the film clubs are still around as well. Yeah. It's just the video sort of disappeared. They disappeared. The last one sort of, I think, was the L F and the Is it the, um, the Culture Center Seoul. or well, that that disappeared in sort of early two thousands or 20 years ago. But yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay.
0: So my next question. What key developments, which you wrote about in Chapter 3, facilitated the proliferation of art houses, places to watch films in the late 80s and the early 90s?
1: Um, Well, first, the first um, big change was um, the dictatorship uh, went and um, um, that kind of loosened up the atmosphere. The problem was they, they, they still had censorship until 1996. So that didn't changed so much. It changed up a little bit, but it loosened up the atmosphere. People thought and expected and wanted more. Uh, and that changed things a lot. Um, the second thing that happened was um, uh, the, the changes, that, uh, the opening of the market to Hollywood uh, film uh, made an opportunity whereby um, companies could import film uh, a lot more easily uh, in this period. The problem was they didn't really have the infrastructure to do this in terms of art film. So they had, they had, they had kind of had the know-how and the um, the wherewithal to sort of import film from Hollywood, for example, or or, or or films from other countries that they thought would make a lot of money, like Hong Kong or something like this that were very popular in that period. But they, they, they weren't so used to sort of dealing with uh, the importation of art film. So what happened was... Um, uh, uh, um a, a wannabe director called uh, Yi Moore um he came along he, he sort of revolutionized the whole um importation of art film in this period um, and this is around 1995, five I'd say 1995 to 1999 he changed things a lot and basically what he did was he was a he went to UCLA to study film Uh, and uh, as part of his um, degree, he sort of finished all his coursework and he had to do a dissertation and and his graduation project was to make a film. So he wanted to make an autobiographical film, which he ended up making, um, but it took him a long time to do it. Um, Basically, cut a long story short, he came back to Korea to make this film because it was about the Korean War, so he thought, I can't make it in the USA, I've got to make it here. Mm -hmm um but to finance his film um he had to set up his own company uh, because no one would no one back in that period of chungo in the you know the established sort of film industry in south korea no one wanted to finance his film because it just sounded too miserable oh, He said this is this is such a, a horrible sounding film we uh-huh. don't want to give you any money for it it will never make any money so he had to um um, try and set up, um, uh, 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 get some money, and get his way into the business in order to make this film. So he he spoke really good English because he'd been at UCLA, uh, and he was hired by this company to go to Cannes film festival and these European film festivals to import film um, and make connections. Um, and in return, this company promised to finance his film and um basically they refused at the end um so uh he said oh, okay I'll, I'll set up comp- i can do this i'm good enough so I'll, I'll just set up in business on my own so he did he said he founded his own company and he imported all these films these art films back then uh the big art cinema was the Hoam art hall uh, i don't know if that still exists i don't think it does and um And um, they would show, you know, occasional art films, uh, which were incredibly popular. You know, you get really massive crowds. So that people recognise, wow, there's some money to be made here. We don't have to just import these blockbusters from Korea, uh, from Hollywood or or from Hong Kong or wherever. We could actually do this and make some money. And the problem was, there all these companies trying to compete for these one one or two sort of blockbusters. But... um, No one was going for these art films. So they saw a sort of gap in the market. So Lee Kwang Mo bought all these films, I think 20 in all, and he brought them all back to Korea. Um, And basically that was the start of um, uh, the sort of golden age, if you like, of art film consumption in uh, South Korea around 95, 96, yeah, 1996. Four, five, six. there was kind of a golden golden period in seoul especially uh where a lot of these films were shown in uh around seoul and they became really popular and there were these little cinemas um the core art hall or art hall and the um the um uh Hoam art hall i mentioned before uh, and then the dongsung Cinematheque. tech these are all really sort of they became really popular and there was a kind of a sort of art film explosion which is quite interesting because the same years this was all happening susan zontag in in new york said "Ah, you know the death of cinema <laughs> you know no one's going no one appreciates film anymore no one loves all these beautiful films made in europe and and uh in, in in the united states in the 70s um and people just like trash that's basically what she's saying but at the same time all these films have really loved in south korea by The small sort of communities of cinephiles, it was quite interesting. Anyway, that that kind of revolutionised film the 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 loosening of the atmosphere, the freeing up of the of the uh, um, the market, Uh, and uh, uh, Kuang Mo Li or E E Kuang Mo, he 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 was sort of central to sort of revolutionising art film consumption in this period.
0: You, I think you interviewed him for this book, right? Um, so, or he, you had in the past. And so he, yeah, he had a lot of good insight about the industry. Um, and then also he was the one involved in something called the sacrifice incident, right? So yeah. could you explain more about, you know, it sounds kind of scary, but like, could you explain more about what the sacrifice incident is and what the impact it had on the, on film consumption in that time?
1: Yeah. actually, Um, when I was writing this book, I, it was right in the middle of the COVID period and, um. I tried to interview him, but he 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 was he was actually very ill. Um, he he got very 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 sick in this period, and uh, we just communicated by by email in the end. I I interviewed him many years ago for, about his film. Um, so that but anyway, um, that, that's a diff, that's another story. The sacrifice incident was really interesting, and if you look at sort of film books of Korean film history, they always mention. Um, or the, the side saibon the, the sacrifice incident basically what happened was Lee um, Kwang Mo said well look um, I want to show all these films, these 20 odd films I bought in Cannes they he borrowed money to buy he had the rights to and he wanted to distribute them in in South Korea, all of which he was going do, do to do to finance his film and he thought well the best way to show these films is not not for me just to give them away. It's actually to set up my own cinema. So he he contacted or he got chatting to somebody who worked at the Bongson Art Hall and said, you know, I want to set up the cinema. And they said, okay, um, that sounds interesting. Why don't you show us the kind of film you want us to to show at the cinema? And then you know, if it's if we like it, then we'll we'll give you a cinema. He said, all right. So he showed him um, this Tarkovsky film. Now Andrei Tarkovsky, sort of archetypal art film uh, director from this period, you know, russian Soviet. Uh, his film was very sort of very slow moving. There's no sort of cause and effect sort of uh, connection in the narrative. Often, you know, sort of uh, the dialogue seems to be sort of um, quite random. You wonder what's going on. It's very s- slow paced, you know, slow cinema, um, but quite interesting films. And he showed them one film. I think it was nostal- Nostalgia. Uh, and the the head of the dog song art, art, art Cinema said, art, art, art Hall said, no, this is, are you crazy? No, no one's going to go and watch this film. It's <laughs> so boring. People just weren't used to it. He said, no one's going to see it. So, um, uh, I, I don't, I'm not going to. He was outraged. He said, I'm never going to let you run the cinema. Forget it. Uh-huh. So uh, uh e. World basically said, Well, look, I bet you, I bet you, it was basically a, a bet. He said, I bet you I can make lots and lots of money and loads of people will flock to go and see this film. Uh, and he said, Okay, prove it. So he said, All right, let me release one film. Uh, and that was A Sacrifice by Tarkovsky which is basically a film about a man who makes a, an intellectual, who makes a, a, a pact with God to avert a nuclear war, a nuclear catastrophe. Uh, and it won sort of best film at, at Cannes Film Festival and all this. Uh, but it is, it is sort of typical Tarkovsky. You know, it's unexplained bits. You don't know what this dialogue's talking about. You know, people sort of mysteriously levitate in the middle of the film. It's quite obscure. You need to watch this. <laughs> yeah, it's mad. <laughs> I mean, I I really enjoyed it, but um, but, you know, it it would put you to sleep, and and a lot of people said that. So he said, look, I'll tell you what, I'll prove to you I can run a, a cinema, it'll make money for you, and and it'll be a great success. We'll distribute this film. So okay, prove it. Go go for it. So, um, Yguan Mo basically sort of set up this, um. Uh, he had this company already they were going to distribute it they sold it to a couple of other cinemas um the lumiere i think and then maybe the core Hall. uh and then they started the marketing and they did this m- massive marketing campaign really well done um and then uh just in a, a, a you know again people said at the time people who went to see this cinema, this film they said oh i i went to the, the screening really late because i thought no i'd be the only one in the cinema so they'd heard about this film, but they'd never seen it. Uh, and there was a queue around the block, and it outsold lots of sort of um, big Hollywood blockbusters of the period. Uh, and it, for a period, it was the most popular film shown in South Korea. So it was a massive thing. If you, Depending on who you, who you talk to, some people say it sold 20,000 tickets, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it was back then. Some people say it sold 100,000 tickets, so it depends who you're talking to, but you get these different answers. Um, um, The problem was, of course, the the official statistics of how much a a movie sold, they were often sort of um, of underestimated, and that way um, cinemas would get away with paying less tax. So if they said, oh, yeah, only... 10,000 people went to see this film, but actually 20,000, they would keep all that sort of revenue that they'd have to give to the, to the government. So they deliberately under-reported attendances. So you can never know for sure, but a lot of people went to see this film. It caused an absolute media sensation and it really started this um, this cinephilia boom in earnest. You know, before it was a very underground thing, it was, you know, associated with these sort of <coughs> Um, sort of weird sort of intellectuals or weird sort of students who were film buffs underground watching these crappy old um, videotapes. And then suddenly it was front page headlines. So this was the sacrifice incident and it really made this art film uh, boom and brought cinephilia into the, the whole country,
0: really. Great. Yeah. I will have to watch that film. That sounds very fascinating. Um, yeah. and I would do so well. It's always a very surprising. It's awesome. So I my next question is about the space of art film. I found that personally very interesting, um, how the space of the art houses uh, was really a big draw for people or what they remembered um, about yeah. it. And so I wondered if you would talk more about the spatial of these uh, viewing art films together.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the, well, that's, this is part of the thing like doing the book. I, I don't really analyze as I said before, I don't really analyze the films of the directors. I'm not looking all that. It's not a history of that, films. It's a history of places and spaces, and it's also a history of the cultures that grew up in the spaces. So that was really interesting to me, and I looked at a lot of theorists. Doreen Massey um, is a famous one, and how they sort of examine space and the meanings that are given to spaces, um, especially cinemas, and also um, how people sort of audiences sort of respond in spaces. So that's something that's very interesting to me. And I was very interested to hear about this from people I interviewed and I surveyed. Uh, and they all sort of gave me the same answer. They said, you know, um, uh, watching a film in these places was very different to watching a film in other places in South Korea at that time. If you were in South Korea at that time, uh, like like me, sort of, um, sort of early 90s onwards, you remember the cinemas they were, they were really strange places in many ways um they were kind of like in seoul if you're in seoul they're all over the place you know you go to a, a third or fourth floor of a um a, a, of an office block and there'd be a cinema you think, wow that, how does it get up there um and they're really cold places in the foyers they're really really cold this they, they, they smelt a little bit of um uh, kerosene because they had these big burners that were Blast out! Eat. They would. Um, you'd eat squid, so they'd be a bit smelly. the smell of squid or or roasted squid and Um If the the show was really popular, then what they would do it they would lay out sort of extra seats in the in, in the um, gangways in the in the passageways. So if there'd been a fire, everyone would have been killed. And there it was a miracle. There was no fire back. There. Wow. Uh, and the other thing was they used to cut the films. So you watch them not because they, there was anything naughty or bad in them or violent or, you know, sexy or something like that, but because they wanted to fit more screenings into one day. So they just cut the film. So you'd be watching a film and suddenly it was like, I, I really don't want to... <laughs> <laughs> the uh-huh. dialogue cuts out. It was crazy. Wow. They so get all this all, all, all this sort of cutting a film and then... When you, everyone would have assigned seats, like nowadays, um, and as soon as the film finished or almost finished, you'd have someone standing over you, waiting for you to get out. And you were watching the end credits. And I used to love watching the end credits and enjoying the music and the atmosphere. they just kick you out. You'd have to leave. So that was the culture then. So what the art houses tried to do was completely overhaul that. They tried to make a, a viewing culture... Um, and what they created back then these early pioneering sort of art houses OM art Hall the core art, um, the core and um, the dongsong Cinematheque and all these places at Lumia they cre- they create this sort of culture of viewing that kind of exists in art film um or art houses to this day in South Korea so it would be kind of a rarefied atmosphere they, they often they weren't allowed to sell uh, popcorn and this kind of thing so you couldn't bring in food but it would add to the sort of rarefied atmosphere um of these places mm-hmm. uh and then they would show the film in their entirety this is quite funny i was interviewing yi mo and he, I, he said oh, i said what was the most difficult thing about making your cinema he said oh that's a good question the most difficult thing was getting the camera Person or well, usually camera man or the projector man to show them the film until the very last shot and the last credit disappeared because <laughs> they would just stop it <laughs> so that they'd start the next the, the next screening and they were used so used to doing that he said it was really difficult to get them to to show the entire film and not to want to cut it mm. um, so this kind of atmosphere um was introduced in these art houses which was so different and this is really important because with the rarefied atmosphere came a different sort of association of cinema with audiences so audiences go and see these films these art films um and then they would behave differently in the cinema so that's what they said they said you know you know did me popcorn and talk we would um, sit there and reserve silence and watch these films, you know, because they deserved respect. Mm-hmm. So another thing that was really interesting was um, I interviewed all these, most of the people I spoke to were women. And I said, I, it's like, why why, why so many women go and see these films then? And he said, well, a lot of people said, a lot of my respondents, or one or two of my respondents said, the well, reason was, it's because we, as women, we, we weren't supposed to go off on our own and go and see movies. we we go and see movies with other people. It was a communal thing. So if you if you told someone you're going off to see a, a film on your own, they thought you were a bit weird. Um, and if you're a woman doing it, they thought you were very weird. But if you said, as a as a woman alone, I'm going off to see a, a European art film. Ah, okay. Nahan. Uh-huh. Wow. So it's, it's seen as something kind of slightly rebellious by the people who are doing it but also seen as something respectable, that it was unacceptable to do. So that was quite interesting. So with this new culture in these theatres, they also developed a new sort of atmosphere and a new way of watching film, I guess. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it kind of stayed with them. Uh, And, you know, 20 years later, they said, yeah, I said, what's your, what's the memory? What's your biggest memory of these cinemas? You know, and I thought they'd say, you know, oh, um, you know, I remember seeing this movie or that movie. And I said, I said we remember watching in total silence. Wow. <laughs> Stuff like this. Wow. If you want to get an idea of what it was like watching a film back then, Darcy Paquette has written a, uh, an article that's on his Korean film website, and he does describe cinema going in the 1990s, and it's just like he says on um, I remember going to a rural cinema as well, and it was even wilder than it was in the the Seoul cinemas. There, I was watching, I went to see Jurassic Park, the first one, and it was like, um, it was mayhem. There were all these little kids in there, and they were just running riot all around the cinema. It was really noisy, and everyone was chatting and talking all the way through the shop. So it was that kind of weird atmosphere. Uh, back then that's very different from now. So you can imagine this new culture coming in, this new art film culture associated with these art film spaces coming in. It was was quite revolutionary.
0: Yeah, I can see how the art houses themselves had created this environment. That was not so much like, uh, consuming entertainment only is like sort of just a way to pass the time and have fun and indulge yeah. in some some foreign culture a little bit but like the art houses certainly seem more like a learning experience an artistic yeah. experience so like, I can see how yeah women too would be more respected like oh you're going alone to like you know learn or it's an intellectual activity so like that's really cool and you that's fine yeah that's really interesting
1: uh, well it was interesting but then you got to remember um, women can smoke on the street.
0: Oh I didn't
1: know that. <laughs> yeah, right in the nineties. I, I I you see I all over the place now, you know, women having a cigarette. We'd actually it's in terms of people's health, it's better. Um, mm-hmm. but older women could smoke, that was all right. Well, you know, sort of ajumar, ajimoni halmoni could smoke. But younger women were not supposed to smoke on the street and, and if 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 someone did they would get they might get uh, told off by a, an older male, So it was a very different it was a very different sort of atmosphere back then. And, and these small changes um were quite were seen as quite significant. So that, that that that's what's so interesting about the 1990s. It was this period of transition, where this great transitions occurred. Um but yeah, as you said, that um um it was it was really important. A lot of the women I spoke to also said, you know, I was going to I was about to do UHAC. I was about to go to study in france or the usa so how did i prepare for this i went to the cinema and watched all these foreign films so i thought this would, it was kind of education unofficial education that would sort of prepare me for this experience so that, that was quite interesting anyway yeah
0: wow yeah thank you thank you for talking about that um uh, so my next question is about chapter five so in that chapter you describe the administrative and economic factors as well as changing domestic film culture which all led to Cinephilia's decline. Would you describe some of these factors?
1: Yeah, I think um, uh, what was well, there was sort of there were the various reasons for the de- decline of Cinephilia. One was there were splits, so political splits um, within the sort of cinephile movement, and they, as I said before, they they kind of consider themselves to be a movement, sort of resi- you know, slightly resisting the chin of one. The a lot of them consider themselves to be a movement. Yeah. They, they were resisting the chid of one, but there was there were actually political splits uh, within this cinephilia, uh, and often it, the, the the tensions could get quite. According to the people I spoke to, the, the tensions could be quite intense between uh, people who kind of viewed film as a means to change the world, and other people who, who thought, well, film should be enjoyed for the for the sake what well, sake of film. So there was uh, Undom Jui, so associated with the movement, and then Yonghua Jui, so seeing art, seeing film, you know, art for art's sake. And there were sort of tensions within the movement. That, that, was, a, that was one issue. Uh, but another, another issue was, I guess, as, as with a lot of sort of cults or, not, you know, I mean, youth cults, for example, you know, different youth cults associated with music. Once, it, once something becomes too mainstream or is seen as too popular or is no longer underground and it becomes quite trendy, then uh, a lot of people start getting bored with it and start moving moving out of the scene and into something else. So I think this is another reason for the decline of cinephilia. You know, it wasn't cool anymore, is it what I, you see what I mean? So people moved on. Mm. But in terms of the administration... Um, and, and the, the changes. What, what's quite interesting about this period, at the end of this sort of art film boom, um, around the sort of late 1990s, the South Korean government sort of stepped in and said, you know, how can we support art film? Uh, how can we support our film, our South Korean film? And on. Oh. Um, and it was the, the period was just when sort of a lot of films like Shitty uh, started to become really popular but at the same time there were all these other directors many of whom had received a lot of their education coming through the ranks of these videotex or these film clubs or these European cultural centres consuming art film you know on the sly uh, a lot of these other directors um, they couldn't get their films shown so in the first multiplexes um, they were trying to get their films shown and if they didn't make him, didn't you know, draw a crowd, they just pull them. Uh, and there was a famous sort of incident I mentioned in the book, Wara Nago, where these 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 sort of films made by young filmmakers, many of them were women, um, and they were kind of done in this kind of arty way, maybe not art house, but they were kind of done in an arty way. They're alternative films, or the Waikiki Brothers, um, um, they call Young Butake, take care of my cat. All these films. They were pulled very quickly by um, sort of early multiplexers. And there was an absolute uproar within the cinema community about this. How can we protect these movies? You know, Shibi makes a lot of money, but on the other hand, you know, these other films don't make any money at all. And they get pulled and no one sees them. And they probably don't even make it to a film festival. How can we protect them? So what they did was the government established a, or via Kozik, Film, film Culture uh, Council, they established a, a network of art films, art, art film cinemas. And the idea was they keep a quota um, and they would show a quota of art house films made in uh, South Korea. So there'd be um, art films which were imported, but there'd also be a lot of art films that were, or, or arty type films made. Uh, in South Korea and the idea was to support these and so they established this network which kind of exists to this day Um, it's changed Um, but it's one of the few countries in the world which actually supports its own film um, or or parts of its cinematic industry um, via um, support for theatres which is quite interesting so um, it's quite an interesting way of trying to support you know film product. Um, so that, that, that's why I devoted um, chapter five to this this question. Um, of course, at the moment, at, at the very moment that the, the, the South Korean government starts supporting these art houses, the cinophilia is in decline. So there are fewer people going to these, there are a few of these original cinephiles going to these art houses. Um, but they started their support in order to sort of support film as well. Mm-hmm. So it's quite an interesting phenomenon. This administration, <clears throat> this administrative sort of effort to uh, to support cinemas.
0: If um, I remember, oh sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. If I remember correctly, there is also a time in, that you mentioned that the um, the support that was given to the art films. They all they in turn required for them to show these Korean films, but uh, sometimes it wasn't. Maybe it was before the Warinago incident um, as well, but they didn't really fall in line with the idea of what this art house should show, like what the the kind of films that we wanted to show. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's right. You're absolutely right. Yeah, it was. It was really the problem is you know if you start interfering in uh, in film. You know what people show in, in cinemas a lot of these these people especially these cinephiles and a lot of the exhibitors I I spoke to were original cinephiles and they were they wanted this freedom they wanted this they had this thirst for culture they had this thirst for knowledge that had been starved from them by the dictatorship for 30 years so um uh then they suddenly get it and they're able to sort of express themselves and, and watch the films that they want to watch and also start to make the films that they wanted to make. They start to be able to do this. And then suddenly you you get in this support from the government. And they say, Oh look, you know, we'll 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 give you some money to run your cinema. It sounds good on paper, but then when you when you look at the, the fine print, you realise that, yeah. You'll support my cinema, but I've got to show these films. So it's kind of going against what you actually set set out to do in the first place. And people thought this is kind of reintroduction of censorship and and government control through the back door. Now, after 30 years, we've been we've been fighting, resisting the dictatorship, and then we're accepting and you know uh, the people from above kind of um, uh, imposing their culture upon us. So people kind of. Don't like it in many ways. They like the they like the subject that getting subsidised, but they don't really like being told by a bunch of bureaucrats. And that's basically what they were, what they were, what they should and shouldn't show. So it was very trial and error. And you know, it's a great idea, and it's very it was done very trial and error. And they they really did try to support these in these cinemas, but they also ended ended up they also upset a lot of people, especially the exhibitors, when they said, "Well, look." you haven't shown enough of these Korean films. So next week, I want you to show this film. And the exhibitors in, in Korea, they they kind of saw what they do. Programming and showing movies as a kind of art. You know, they didn't just show random films. They carefully planned it out. Okay, this week, we're going to show this film. Next week, we're going to show a season of French films. The week after, we're going to show a season of Japanese films. They saw it as an art form that, people would respond to it and their, their audiences loved it. Um, and then you get some bureaucrats saying, no, you know, never mind the Japanese seat uh, uh, season, you have to show this film because you haven't fulfilled your quota of Korean films for this week. So, it, you know, there was a lot of tensions and
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah, it's quite an interesting story. But...
0: <laughs> okay. So brings me to one of my last questions. What is the current state of art houses in Korea today, and what do you think the future holds in store for them? Also, how does society view art houses and art films these days?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, uh, a lot of these places still exist, um, and you can go to some examples. And that, that one of the most pleasure, pleasurable sort of things about researching this book was actually visiting some of these cinemas that existed. They exist today. So one of the problems was. I did all my research during the COVID period, so I couldn't actually go to any cinemas. But uh, after I'd written the book, or most of the book, and I was revising it, I was able to visit a lot of cinemas. And some of these uh, art houses are in fantastic places. One I went to on a little island, um, on the DRFA um, 365, I think it's called. Um, It's on a little island near Incheon Airport. It's fantastic, and it's in the country... And you kind of get a whole package. You can go there for dinner, and then you get to see a movie, and then you have a chat with the the, the exhibitor, the, the the cinema owner, who's also a film, an ex film director himself. Mm-hmm. Um, so you get kind of whole package of a, a whole day out, if you like, at the cinema. It's really really nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you you have all these other sort of little cinemas here and there, um, which have not just Cinemas in them. They're special spaces. They have study spaces. They have lecture halls. They have um, cafes and libraries or archives. All sorts of stuff associated with them. So they're really interesting. They still they still exist uh, and they're still going strong. A lot of these places. Often they don't make their money just from watching films, but with a sort of culture associated with with them. Um, so I visited some cinemas in the north of Seoul which were like that. Um they were kind of multi-use cultural spaces is what we called them. Um but they're really interesting. Well um, there's still a lot a lot of these cinemas are still supported. And one of the sort of I, I end the uh, book kind of on a positive note, um, by saying because prior to um sort of the covid period there was a kind of long period of tension with the government and the sponsors of a lot of these art houses um where um some of these exhibitors were kind of blacklisted um, during the blacklist scandal because of their perceived associations with you know left-wing movements and all the rest of it so a lot of these people um there was a kind of a lot of bitterness and resentment against the government but so i talk about this this tension I'd also talk about um, the current period, the COVID period, has been slightly more positive. Where, because I get the sense that during COVID, of course, films in Korea were still being produced, films in Hollywood are still being produced. But the one thing that people couldn't do was actually see them in a cinema.
0: Um,
1: there are all these restrictions, as you remember, going to cinema, being public spaces, and all the rest of them. and. I got the sense that a lot of administrators in what they said, they really recognize the value of a space, of going out to see a, a movie in cinema space and why it's so special to people, the meaning that it has in their lives. And it is quite special. And if you think about it, it's kind of a miracle that cinemas exist today, and they do. and uh, 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 It's kind of a miracle that they, su- they survive because there are all these other viewing options. We can watch films on Netflix, and we do. We can watch films on online. We can download them for free. We can get them illegally and all the rest of it. We've got all these viewing options, but we still sort of opt to go to the cinema, um, this space, and watch them and pay quite a lot of money to do so and also travel quite a distance to do so. So there is that fascination for cinemas. And I think I've got the, the sense at the end of the this, uh, of my research that and you know, after... COVID uh, um, that a lot of administrators kind of recognize the value of spaces to people um, Mm. partly because of the COVID challenge or they had on spaces. So that, that, I kind of uh, end the the book on a positive note and I think it is quite positive. Um, uh, So, you know, I can't say what's going to happen next year or what's going to happen in the future, but I hope these spaces do exist because there's some fantastic cinemas and they're worth, they've all got their sort of individual character uh, and all um, uh, got their sort of reason for for going to them. The art house, uh, Momo, for example, on EY University, in U, Iwa University um, the, and and um, lots of other sort of cinemas. I went to visit. They're really lovely places.
0: I was a uh, I was disappointed in a way when I uh, saw Momo Cinema because I lived in that area for two years. And I never knew it was there, and I'm like, oh, no, I, was like, Dang it. I never went. But yeah, maybe I, I would like to try again with some films because I've become a lot more interested these days. So this was really wonderful for me to be able to learn more about the history of um, a part of the cinematic experience in Korea through your book. And, um, oh, before we head out today, because I've taken a lot of your time, I wanted to ask if there's anything else you would like your uh, our listeners to know about your book um, that we haven't really covered yet.
1: I, I think we've got most of it, actually. I mean, it's just one thing I say is um, I look at these cultural, these spaces, but also look at the connections between the people who are running cinema today in South Korea, people who are running, you know, the multiplexes and the the successful industry that it is, some of these famous directors and this period of cinephilia and these spaces. And it really did produce these people uh, who are so successful with their, their festivals and all the rest today. Um, and I think that's quite important. You know, I wasn't just looking at um, the communities and cultures and spaces that were produced in this period. I was also looking at the connection between today's successful South Korean industry and what happened back then, uh, and to the extent still happening today. So well, one thing I would say is, if you get the chance, go and see some of these cinemas in the book, because um, they are really wonderful places and um, one I never got to visit is the Kwangju Kukjang, the Kwanju Theatre, which is still supported um, by um, uh, kofik and is still a place showing art house film, which is supposed to be absolutely marvellous. It's supposed to be such a beautiful atmospheric place um, and I, I'd love to go there. It's one of my dreams. Anyway, thank you.
0: Thank you so much for giving us your time. Um, so we look forward to whatever future projects you might have, and I look forward to meeting you again someday, um, and have a wonderful rest of your day.
1: You too, Ashley. Thank you very much.